Hey friend, are you struggling to find consistent paid speaking gigs? Do you want to know the exact six steps that you can take to find and book more paid speaking opportunities in 2024? Well, we want to make that easy for you. We've created a new free resource with the help of Dan Irvin, one of our highly successful speakers on our team. Dan has booked over $100,000 in paid speaking gigs in the last few years, and his six-step process is going to help you maximize your chances of getting booked and paid to speak in any industry. You're going to learn how to get started prospecting, master discovery calls, and proposal emails and so much more. All you got to do is go to thespeakerlab.com slash steps and we're going to send you this 18-page guide straight to your inbox. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash steps and you're going to get that free guide. Hey, thanks for listening. You're awesome. What's up, friends? Graham Bolton here. So glad to have you here with us today for episode 428 of the Speaker Lab podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome my friend and attorney, Autumn Witt Boyd, who's hanging out with us today. She's here to talk all things legal and bring clarity to the uniqueness of online businesses, intellectual property, and some of the things that you need to consider as you build your speaking business. Together, we're going to be taking a closer look at building contracts when it's important to be specific and also how to navigate extenuating circumstances, especially in the shadow of a global pandemic. Autumn also is going to share her thoughts on contract writers, how to file for protection, and even the right way to reference others' work in your own content creation. She's also going to highlight how to protect your brand, when to obtain a trademark, and also reveal some of the most commonly missed legal things that entrepreneurs tend to overlook. Autumn not only keeps things simple, but grounds the conversation through a risk and reward assessment that's going to help you prioritize any legal considerations. There's a ton to learn from this conversation, and Autumn brings a ton of experience to the table. So let's get right to it. Here's episode 428 of the Speaker Lab podcast with Autumn Witt Boyd. Enjoy. Hey, what's up, friends? Graham Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab podcast. Good to have you here with us today. Today, we are talking uh, with my friend and attorney, Autumn Witt Boyd, and uh, excited to be chatting with her on all things legal for, uh, for speakers. So, Autumn, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. All right. So uh, first of all, why don't you give us a, a little overview snapshot? What is it that you do uh, in the legal world? You've been very helpful for us uh, and we've come to you for a variety of different things. And so your legal expertise has been very, very valuable here at the Speaker Lab. But give us a snapshot and overview of what you do with, with entrepreneurs. Yeah, glad to hear it. So I am the founder and one of the attorneys at the AWB firm. We work exclusively with online businesses like yours, uh, mostly online course creators, um, different kinds of experts. We have a number of clients who are speakers um, and we help them. We're full service. So we might help with contracts. We might help with building a team. We might help with uh, resolving a dispute because those unexpected things can come up the longer you're in business. Um, I'm an intellectual property lawyer by training, um, but we try and hit on everything that we can to support our clients. You do a phenomenal job with that. So anytime we have something come up, let's just, I don't know, ask Autumn. Let's see what she has to say. So she'll normally, you, you get us out of trouble. Uh, okay, we so try. let's start with, um, uh, we're, there's a lot of different directions we can go here, but let's start with contracts. This is something that when a, when a speaker books a gig, you gotta have a contract. And we always have said, a, a, I remember a, a mentor told me early on, a paper trail is a safe trail. If you didn't like get that. it in writing, it didn't happen. Uh, and it's also, I remember him saying like, uh, especially when it comes to money, people's memories get very, very fuzzy. Uh, and so contracts can be super, super complex and complicated. They can be very, very simple. Uh, 
I know for me, like speaking gigs I've done historically, I've tended to be pretty simple, like just a basic one sheet that may or may not even hold up in court. Not that I would even get to that point, but like how should speakers just in general be thinking about contracts? What should be included? What shouldn't be included? What's too much? What's overkill? What's, you know, what's the bare minimum? How, how should we be thinking about contracts? Yeah. So first of all, you're absolutely right. And I'm before I get too far in, I'll give my standard disclaimer, which is I am a lawyer. If you're listening, I'm not your lawyer. I am Grant's lawyer <laughs> or uh, this, the Baldwin Company's lawyer. Um, but please just take everything that we're talking about today as not it's not legal advice. This is just information to get your wheels turning. If you have specific questions, please reach out to your lawyer. Um, but to answer your question, you're absolutely right. I am a huge fan of putting things in writing, um, even having one single piece of paper rather than a bunch of emails is even better. Um, because as you said, people's memories can differ, especially if you're talking through things. So a contract, even if it's one that you have written that you're not sure is 100% um, legally correct is going to get you probably where you need to go. Um, the way I think to answer your question about, you know, how much needs to be in a contract, how complicated does it need to be? I kind of take a proportional view to legal. So if you are dealing with, you know, a hundred thousand dollar speaking gig, that's really high stakes. You've got a lot. You're probably investing a lot yourself in that. They're investing a lot in you. And so you want to have a really good contract. You probably want legal counsel to help you negotiate that. Uh, as you're just getting started, your speaker fees are probably much lower. Maybe you're just, you know, getting paid for your travel or to attend an event. Um, the risks are much lower. So when we look at how complicated or how complete your contract needs to be, that's kind of how I look at it. Um, and when we have clients send us agreements to review, we kind of look at it that same way. You know, do we want to spend $5,000 in legal fees on a $250, you know, speaking fee? That makes no sense. Yeah. Now, what type of things should be included? What are the things that should be left off of a speaker contract? Yeah, so the basics are obviously the money. <laughs> so what are they paying for? And if they are paying for travel and things like that, I like to have that spelled out. You know, are they paying for your flights? Are they reimbursing you? Is there a cap? Do you get to fly first class or is it, you know, just a, um, what, do, what do we call it? Economy. Um if there's a hotel, are you being booked at the conference hotel or do you, can you book yourself wherever? You know, those specifics are helpful because those are things you might not think about until you're actually doing the gig. Um, so it's helpful to talk about. And some of this, it will just help you um, go ahead and um, talk it out with the event host in advance. So definitely anything to do with money, um, your speaker fee reimbursement, all of that is really critical. Uh, the second thing is, what exactly are you doing? So are you providing a talk? Are you attending a party? Are you doing a breakout or a workshop? You know, be really specific about what exactly you're doing. Um, they I, they will always ask for more, <laughs> I have found. Um, and if you're on site, you know, you can get kind of pulled into things. So if it's spelled out really clearly, that's helpful. Um, the thing that I find is forgotten a lot of times is what to do if either side wants to terminate or cancel. What if the event gets canceled? Do you have to give the money back if you've already been paid? Um, what if you get sick or you have to cancel for some reason? Um, what if the event is re not canceled, but rescheduled? Um, so think through, you know, and um, shameless plug, we do have contract templates for a lot of this. We have a speaker agreement. Um, so, you know, we have kind of all of that spelled out. So again, you may not need all of that, especially if it's a smaller gig, but it's helpful to think through like, okay, worst case scenario, how would I want that to be handled? And you can kind of address that on the front end. Um, the last thing I'll mention is intellectual property. You know, I'm an IP lawyer. Um, so, you know, that you own the rights to your talk, 
Ideally, um, if they want to own the rights, I have seen, you know, we review a lot of these contracts. I have seen rights grab, what I would call a rights grab, where they want to own the rights to your talk. I generally say that's not okay unless they're paying you an awful lot of money. Um, you know, that would increase my price substantially. And now are they going to record it? Are they going to reuse it? Kind of think through all of that. Um, and if they want to do all of that, that should be more money, hopefully. Uh, and I think everything you laid out there is is really like what we've always had in our contracts. And it's just, it's very, very simple, but it just kind of spells things out. Now, one thing I want to go back and touch on there is where you talked about the specificity that you need is that, again, the more vague and the more open-ended you leave it, the, the greater likelihood for uh, miscommunications or misunderstandings. I'll give you a quick, a quick example. I remember um, I went and I did a talk, I was doing, I think I was like a, uh, speaking at a conference or something. Actually, it was a school assembly. That's what it was. I go and I speak at the school assembly and I do like a normal like 45 minute talk. And that's what I would normally do. And I go and I talk to the, it wasn't the principal, but someone at the school afterwards, this, uh, uh, this, the person I'd been working with and they were super nice and super helpful and just like, oh, it was awesome. You know, we, we loved it. And, and I was like, oh, great. And so like a couple weeks later, they send like a, a pretty strong email basically saying, you know, we had blocked off the school assembly for like an hour and a half and you went 45 minutes. And I was like, wait, what? Like, we've never discussed that, you know? And so then like we started putting in like in parentheses, you know, up to 60 minutes or whatever, you know, and really making sure to like specify that whenever it comes to expenses, you know, when you say travel expenses, it's good to just throw some of those things out there. Does that mean like you buy a bottle of water at the airport? Are you paying for that? Or are they paying for that? You want to pay for, you know, the Uber to the airport, right? You pay parking, for parking, all that, you know, yeah. like tolls, you know, some of these just like random miscellaneous things. If, if you were expecting they were going to cover that and they are not expecting that, then it leaves a bad taste in people's mouth. And you, you know, you don't, you don't want to do that. So, the more specific you can be on including those type of things, the, the the better and the clearer it is for everybody. Yeah. The other things, I was just scrolling through our template to see um, what else to think about. If you do have specific AV needs, like a specific type of um, presentation you know, equipment or any of that, or if you like to have a stool versus a chair, you know, any of that stuff, go ahead and throw that in. Um, and again, that should be something you're talking about with the event host if you do have those requirements to make sure that they know that way ahead of time. Yep. Yep. Now, one thing you were touching on as well is what happens in the event that something happens and, and the event can't happen or you can't be there or you get sick. We've, we've definitely have seen this in the past couple of years with COVID and, you know, someone tested positive or the event's not happening. I know pre-COVID, I've done hundreds and hundreds of paid speaking engagements and an event not happening or some last minute thing was really, really, really rare. And so I would always tell speakers, you know, uh, you need as a speaker, you need to do everything within your power to be there. And so I've got some war stories of getting to events to just, you gotta be there. Um, but like, what is the kind of the general rule of that? Because I think there's kind of two sides of it. There's the, what does the contract say? What does the contract, you know, spell out? But then there's also kind of the practical side of like, okay, you know, this situation came up, how do I best handle this to, you know, potentially preserve a relationship with this client? Or here's what the contract says, but we're actually going to do this that works in their favor, you know, so how, like, what should the contract say? And then how do you think about when to like really enforce a contract versus just like, you know, being, adding a human element to it, you know? Yeah. So I always like the contract and some of this will depend on your bargaining power. Um, you know, if you're a really big name speaker, you're going to have a lot of bargaining power and the contract will be written more in your favor. If it's a really big event and you're just starting out, you know, you're going to have basically no bargaining power. So kind of keep that in mind. Uh, but I 
I like the contract to be written kind of more harshly or more um, stringently um, so that you do have an out if, you know, you get sick or you have an emergency or something like that. Now, that may be a negotiating point that the host wants to have some sort of either they get their money back or you have to provide a replacement. You know, I've seen this go a couple ways. And if you're working with an agency, I don't know how many of your speakers are working with an agency, but often in the agency contracts, they will provide a replacement because, uh, you know, they have a whole roster of people that they can pull from if they need to. Um, but yeah, I've seen it go both ways. Um, so that is just going to kind of depend. Like you said, in this day and age, if if you are you know, physically unable to get there, but maybe you can get on Zoom. Maybe that might be an option, depending on what kind of event it is that may or may not work. Um, but yeah, we've, we've seen it go a lot of ways. But to, to your point about being, you know, the human element, I think you can always kind of negotiate afterwards, but you want your contract to be kind of as mean as you would ever want to be, um, or as, as strict. And then you can always bend a little bit, you know, on the backside if, you know, something came up, especially if it's, you know, not your fault, not their fault. Um, to try and accommodate the best you can. Right, right. So it's really, I mean, it feels like it's always been like just a case-by-case basis of here's what the contract says, here's what the letter of the law is in this situation, but... You know, I, I am building a relationship-based business, and so I, you know, I want to, you know, it's not, they didn't do anything wrong, or I didn't do anything wrong, and it's just kind of this, you know, weird situation that happened. And so, how do we create the best possible outcome, you know, for, you know, for the business, for the relationship, or whatever it may be? Now, if we go back, um, you know, a couple of years, especially at the beginning of the of the pandemic, when like all events are shutting down, and you're dealing with um, uh, just the the local rules and restrictions around events and people gathering, there was the thing that we kept hearing of the for a force majeure. Yes. Uh, what is that? Explain that to us and, and how that may or may not affect events. Well, I'll tell you what, we had that in a lot of our templates, but we have them in every, in every single one now. Um, so force majeure, it's sometimes also called an act of God clause. And it is basically meant to address things that are truly out outside of anyone's control. So nobody did anything wrong, but there is a labor strike and you can't get into the theater or, you know, COVID happens and, you know, we're in lockdown. So you literally can't have the event. Um, the thing is, now that COVID has happened, I think most people are considering that is no longer unforeseeable. So, um, you know, things that are ongoing like that are no longer a surprise. Like this is the day and age that we're living in now. Um, But having that in your contract is it really protects both sides. Um, And it might include, you know, although with a speaker agreement, because it is so specific to one person providing a service, you'll probably have other terms that deal with if you get sick or have something come up that you can't, you know, travel interruption, things like that. Uh, but that force majeure is just kind of your catch-all, like something happened, it's outside of anybody's control. Basically, it usually allows either side to cancel the contract, um, which normally you wouldn't be able to do with the speaker agreement. Um, and then you just kind of try and figure it out from there. You know, if if you can reach an agreement on, you know, further actions, but it allows kind of either side to be like, no harm, no foul, but this d- didn't work out. Okay. Cool. Uh, can you tell us what's the difference between like contracts and writers? Uh, because one thing you kind of touched on there was um, you may have some type of, you know, audio preference. I want this type of microphone instead of that type of microphone. I want the stage to be set up like this or the lighting like this. Or, you know, you hear about the, the you know, the, the stories of musicians or artists who they want, you know, the, their jar of red Skittles or the water to be, you know, European imported at certain temperature or whatever. Degrees, yeah. Totally. So how do you, um, uh, like, what's the difference of those? How does a, a writer fit in with a, a contract? Yeah, so um, a contract is going to be 
you know, your basic agreement and then think of the rider as something that's kind of tacked on. So the way a rider usually works is the event host may have a standard agreement that they want every speaker to sign. And then each speaker may have, you know, like you said, some special requirements or some special terms that they want to kind of tack on. Um, You never want to be signing two totally separate agreements. We do see that sometimes where the speaker has theirs and the event host has theirs and they're conflicting. Um, So this avoids that problem, but you kind of tack on this rider that has kind of extra things that might not be in the original contract. It could go the other way, although I usually see it. The speaker is the one bringing the rider to the party. Um, Other things I mentioned um, when we were talking before, um, we have seen an kind of influx of speakers who only want to speak at events that kind of are in alignment with their values. And so sometimes they will say, I will only speak at this event if you know, whatever, 25% of the speakers are women or 50% are people of color. Um, And so we've been seeing some of those things even put into the rider that will give the speaker, you know, the speaker can cancel if that agreement isn't met. Because a lot of that has been done to date, has been done verbally. And then if it's it's not actually happening, then you get to the event and you kind of have no way out. Um, So I've seen some of that go in riders as well. Gotcha. And so I guess it just really comes down to the speaker, meaning like uh, if it is something that they want, that's important enough that they're willing to lose the gig or walk away from the gig over something like that, that they're going to put in writing and not just kind of like, oh, I'd, I would prefer for this to happen. Um, but it's something that like they, you know, they could completely back out of the gig based on the event not following through on that. Yeah. And it's funny. I heard a story about, you know, why some of the musicians have those requirements about the, you know, the green M&Ms or whatever, Um, that that actually started not because the artists were being, you know, special flowers, um, but that there were other things in the writers that were really important that they wanted to be paid attention to. And they're like, I'm going to stick this in. And if I walk into the dressing room and there's no green M&Ms, then I know I have to check every other thing because they probably didn't pay attention to that either. I heard that. I don't remember who the band was, but I've heard that same thing that they just had like this massive writer pages and pages and pages of all these like really nuanced, weird things. Yes. And it was just like, okay, I check and the green M&Ms or whatever it was is there. I really don't need to check, you know, maybe the the decent spot check. Yeah, totally, totally. So that's super. It's interesting how they how they use that. Um, Okay, let's shift gears a little bit. You touched on IP intellectual property. Uh, Let's first start by talking about uh, for a speaker. Speaker gets up on stage. They present their material for whatever length of time that is ultimately their IP. Um, Is there something like how do we make sure as speakers like we're protecting because when we're just speaking it into the ether, people may in this day and age maybe recording it or putting it up on social or, you know, tagging people or whatever. Like, how should we be thinking about IP and the balance of, you know, sharing it, protecting it? And what, what, what are our thoughts there? Yeah. So legally, under U.S. law, and I'm a Tennessee lawyer, Grant and I are both Tennesseans, uh, but copyright law is the same in all 50 states. So under U.S. law, from the moment that something is out of your head and is in some sort of um, f- tangible medium, so it could be um, written down on paper, it could be in a computer file, it could be on video, um, you have copyright protection over that. That's automatic. So um, any you know any talk that you are giving, as long as it is written down or captured on video or somehow. Um, you know, if it's just being spoken and nobody captures it, that's not going to be protected. But in this day and age, like you said, we're, we're typically going to have it captured somehow. So you have copyright protection. 
Um, you cannot actually sue someone. So let's say someone rips off your speech or someone takes a video and posts it without your permission. Um, typically for most of that stuff, if it's publicity, you're not going to really care. Um, now, what's the problem is if another speaker starts using your stuff or if let's say you're doing a corporate event and they maybe are putting it in a product that they're selling. You know, there may be some things that you're really not OK with if someone is profiting from your talk or your IP um, or if you're giving out handouts and you're finding them you know, used in ways that you don't appreciate. Um, you can't file a lawsuit until you actually register it with the Copyright Office. So I'm not saying everyone needs to register everything because there is a cost and time associated with that. But let's say you have a signature talk that you're giving a lot and you're you know, charging a fair amount for it. That might be something to think about. Um, that's going to be your your best level of protection. And so how would like how do we even file for protection for a talk? You know, it's just it's it's my 60 minute signature talk. And it's a talk that I've given, you know, you know, perhaps hundreds of times. And it's got a lot of, you know, core ideas and stories. And some of them are like personal stories. I like is someone really going to steal this, and knock this off. And yes, that does happen. But like, how, how do you like how do you ultimately protect a, you know, a, a verbal talk? Yeah. So you'd have to capture it somehow because you have to actually submit it to the Copyright Office. So that could be a written script. It could be a video. Um, however, you want to kind of capture that. And of course, you'll change it a little bit because, you know, we all change things a little bit over time. It evolves. Um, but whatever you send to the Copyright Office is kind of what's frozen in time. So, again, if you've got a talk that you're really worried about protecting and it's evolving and you've changed a bunch of things, you might want to you know redo that registration. Have you heard of ever heard of, of, of a speaker like trying to protect their their like file for some type of copyright for their talk yeah, itself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, I don't know if I've heard of that. Yeah, interesting. I don't okay. know how common it is, but yeah, yeah, that's going to be and and you know you've got a little protection or not a little you've got protection in your contract hopefully around the what the event host is going to do with attendees that's really hard to control. Um, and so that's what I say. I think in practice, if someone is taking a video of your talk and putting it up online. As long as they're tagging you, hopefully, or, you know, some way identifying you, um, you know, the harder thing is people pull quotes and don't attribute it at all. And so, you know, you've got things just floating out there that nobody knows were yours. Um, and that's almost impossible to stop. Is that like how should and obviously like the, the bigger the speaker, the more that that's going to be an issue. Uh, like how much would you recommend like a speaker work to protect that or guard against that or I could see like on because it seems like on on uh, on one or two extremes of on one and ten you're just like they don't do anything and it's just kind of out there and they just hope like well it's, it is what it is and maybe it helps further my brand or get people in front of people whatever um, on the other hand it feels like you know you could probably send uh, cease and desist letters constantly and just playing you're just playing whack-a-mole all the time so like where do you land on how to because if you if you protect something how do you continue to protect it yeah I think depends on what role speaking plays in your business. You know, is that your whole business where you're just trying to book more gigs? You would probably approach it differently because, like you said, you're building relationships. You want to get on more stages. Um, sending out cease and desist letters is not a great way to make friends. <laughs> now, on the other end, if you, you know, maybe you are an author and you have books and you're a really high paid speaker, um, you're doing far fewer events. So, Maybe you want to hold that talk a little closer to the vest because you really want people to pay you the big bucks to come deliver it. You don't want it out there on YouTube where anybody can watch it. Um, you might take a different approach there. I think that's going to be far fewer, if I had to guess. 
Gotcha. Uh, all right, let's shift gears a little bit on the IP talk as far as let's say you want to use someone else's potential IP and that could come in a lot of different formats. You heard a story that you want to use or kind of an anecdote or you read something in a book or you want to reference, let me play a clip from a song or let me show you this YouTube video that's you know really cool. And like you see a lot of that stuff. So are we allowed to do that? Should we not do that? Do we need to get permission to do that? What are we, what are we able to do? Yeah, so the, the strict legal answer is anytime you're using someone else's IP without their permission, that could be copyright or trademark infringement. Now, you're giving, you know, you mentioned before you're talking at a school assembly. When we think about risk, that is probably very low risk, you know, that, that, that a movie studio or, you know, song publishing company would ever even find out about that. So, could technically be copyright infringement unlikely that anything will happen. Now, if you're at a university or a big corporation, they may be a little less risk tolerant. So they may, you know, ask that you, ha you know, show your clearances. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. Um, I've certainly reviewed contracts that had that as a provision. Um, that I've seen were... where with some speakers where if you're going to speak at, again, like let's say some, you know, Fortune 50 company that's a big target, like they either want to review like a script of your talk or they want to review uh, your slides ahead of time. And just like from a, like a compliance standpoint of they got a lot of targets on their back. And so they got to make sure that they're, if they're bringing in someone from the outside that they're, you know, protecting themselves. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, good practice, especially if you are doing one of those higher profile gigs, is to either get permission or kind of minimize how much you're using other people's stuff. Um, that, I, I would say, is more like songs, movies, like more high profile IP. Um, you know, you mentioned using an anecdote or, you know, a small portion of a book. I think that's going to be much lower risk. Um, if you're featuring someone's story, though, in your talk, I would definitely want to at least let them know, maybe get their permission, uh, make sure that they're OK with it, because that's the kind of thing that can be damaging to relationships, too. Someone finds out that they're a joke in your talk and they had no idea like that doesn't feel great. Um, or if you're using someone's picture, um, you know, just to run it by them. It doesn't have to be some fancy contract. It could be an email. Um, but just getting it in writing that they, you know, they know, especially if you're giving this talk over and over and over and over. Right. So for expanding kind of even outside of a, a talk, you know, for, for most speakers, it's, it's more than just a talk. They, you know, they have a book or they have a website or a blog or podcast or other forms of media and content that they're doing. Like, how do we continue to kind of protect the whole empire in terms of, of content, but also like uh, shifting gears a little bit, like trademarks is something else that comes up of what do we trademark? What do we not trademark? And so uh, going beyond a speech, how do we make sure that we're just we're, we're protecting our overall IP? Yeah. So for for what I consider content marketing, like your blogs, your emails to your list, any any of that kind of stuff, it's really hard to protect. I mean, you're not going to be registered. It, it is covered by copyright law, but just as a practical matter, you're not going to be registering the copyrights to that stuff. You know, maybe if you have a signature online course or something like that, that's really making you money, that's worth doing. We do a lot of those registrations. Uh, but for that day in, day out, like social media posts, blog posts, um, you know, you can put the copyright notice on there. Um, but what we have found is usually people, I mean, sometimes people do copy and paste it verbatim, um, but most of the times they're taking your idea and they're rewriting it or they're, you know, it's clear that they were inspired by you. Um, that stuff is just really hard to enforce. So sometimes we try, sometimes people will comply. Um, but I would generally say, like, don't worry about that stuff as much. Um, you know, you can spend all day feeling like you are just battling ogres. But at the end of the day, that is probably not what's really bringing you business and not what's making you money. So, you know, we try and fo focus on the things that are really affecting your business and your bottom line. Um, now, 
contracts are a great way to do that. So, you know, I mentioned if you do have, um, you know, ways that you're making money from your content, like an online course, you know, having a solid contract with your students is a good way to do that. Um, but for all the marketing stuff, we just don't, I generally say, just don't worry about that too much. It seems like just everything in general is you're just constantly weighing the risk reward yeah. of, yeah. okay, if we don't, you know, if we have a contract in this, you know, how long should that contract be? Or do we even do a contract in this situation? Yeah. What's the downside if we, oh, it's the worst case scenario if we don't do it. And cause it is easy to like take it to the extreme. And this is something we've talked about internally within our company is like, okay, you know, based on something like, should we do X, Y, and Z? Like, okay, technically we could do that, but there's also like, let's say that if we add all this legalese in, does that potentially hurt conversions? Does that right, scare people right. away? Knowing that like, okay, if we don't do it, it may open us up to a one and up whatever chance that something's going to happen or yeah. we do have some type of legal issue. So it's just like a constant, you know, risk reward assessment. That's what we of, do, Grant, as lawyers. Yeah, we try and try and help you avoid the really big risks. Yeah. Uh, but like you said, every business, there's some risk. You, you can't avoid all of it or you'd spend all your time worried about that and not you know providing great services or products and actually getting in front of customers. Yeah. Now we, we spend a lot of time here talking specifically about speakers, but just for entrepreneurs in general, you work with a lot of online entrepreneurs, other things that maybe we want to hit on that we touch on, uh, as it relates to just like, Hey, here's some common things that I see where, um, you know, uh, business owners can drop the ball or overlook things or like, here's something that you should probably be paying more attention to than most, uh, entrepreneurs are anything else that we should be aware of or be thinking about. Yeah, you mentioned trademarks, so I'll touch on that just quickly. Um, so copyrights are gonna protect your content, trademarks are gonna protect your brand. Um, so like the Speaker Lab um, mm -hmm. would be a trademark. Um, so I actually have kind of an unpopular opinion here. I think people worry about trademarks more than they should. Um, I think for most, you know, kind of personality-driven businesses, which I think most speaking businesses are, um, yeah. the trademarks are probably not as important as contracts <laughs> or some other things. Um, so, and what I find is a lot of, you know, talks and other, you know, even book titles um, are using really common words. So they're not really strong trademarks anyway. Um, so I would just kind of like put that, put that to the side um, until you do have a really strong brand that you're really well known for. Um, just don't worry too much. Trademark registration is very expensive and it takes forever. <laughs> do you do you have registered trademarks, Grant? I can't remember. We've done a couple with you yeah. guys that I think yeah. are still pending. That like we filed. They take forever. Like, yes, a long time ago yeah. uh, on a few things. So it's about yeah, twelve it's, to eighteen months right now is like yeah, average. Yeah. It's just a hurry up and wait process. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, yeah. but if and, you do have a sit, and again, we're talking about risk reward. Like if you have a signature course, a signature talk, a signature kind of concept that you feel like is really identified with you or with your business, that may be worth protecting. Uh, but I think people worry. About about it too early often um, and it's it's expensive so as you're thinking about where you want your legal or just general business dollars to go um, that's not generally the first place that I would look I we enjoy you but we prefer to spend as little money with you as possible I know I know uh, uh, I think any, yeah the, the other thing I would mention that I think um, people are talking about this more but um, there are all these privacy laws um, and you just kind of can't avoid them. So um, comply, you know, we are starting to see lawsuits around, you know, not having a privacy policy or not protecting, you know, customers data that you may have, especially if it's sensitive. Um, so you just can't ignore that stuff. It's it's not that hard to comply is the good news. That's not super expensive or burdensome, but just one of those costs of doing business. 
Very much so. Uh, th- you touched on this earlier, but you've got some templates and some like like super easy uh, uh, tools that, that people can use. So if people want to find out more about you, uh, some of the tools that you offer for entrepreneurs, speakers included, wh- where can we go? Yeah, everything's on the website. It's my initials, awbfirmfirm.com. And we're awbfirm on social media. You can find us there, all the places. Autumn, thanks for the time. Thanks for saving us on legal expenses over the years. You're so welcome. All right, there you have it. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Speaker Lab podcast. Now, I want you to know that we do this podcast simply because we want to serve and support speakers like you. We don't charge anything for you to listen, but in return, we do have one small favor to ask. Would you be willing to subscribe to the podcast where you're listening right now? Hit that subscribe button. Also, leave us a rating and review within iTunes or Spotify, wherever you listen to these podcasts. We read every single one of them, and they also help other people to find the show. Also, if you are looking to take the next step in growing your speaking business, be sure and check out thespeakerlab.com. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com. We've got a ton of free resources and tools there, and you can also learn more about the programs that we offer, which include one-on-one coaching. Our mission here is to help you find the confidence, clarity, and clear path that you need to own your speaking success. So again, check us out over at thespeakerlab.com. As always, we appreciate you hanging out with us, and we'll catch you next time. You're awesome.